why are we seeing more more random events, more spikes of, of asset classes than ever? And really, I think comes down to the fact that prior to 2020, for many, many decades, we had been managing the situation, both like for, for, with the way the Fed had to manage the situation and how advisors, by virtue of that, had to manage the situation. It was a two-dimensional game. I think this concept of balancing on a barrel, right? You put a plank on top of the barrel and you're either going left or right. It's a two-dimensional kind of balancing act that, you know, you practice it long enough, you kind of figure it out somewhat. It, it's not as a difficult a game as when you introduce a third variable. So back then the variable was either a positive growth shock or a negative growth shock. The variable that was introduced in 2020 was inflation. And we equate that as having to ba balance yourself on the top of a ball now, right? That is a three-dimensional game. Hello, and welcome to the Resolve Rifts Investment Podcast, where the science of investing meets real-world application. Join Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Richard Latterman of Resolve Asset Management as they bring their extensive investment experience to bear on deep dives into the current market trends, optimal portfolio construction, and risk management techniques helping animate the world of quantitative investing with a global macro perspective. This podcast is a must-listen for professional capital allocators seeking to navigate the complexities of global markets with skill and confidence. Welcome to the journey. Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. All opinions expressed by the principals are their own and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Resolve Riffs. This time, it is truly a Resolve Riffs episode. We haven't done one of these in a while, guys. We thought that it would be a good idea to revisit some of the discussions that we had last year with regards to the global macro space, how it affects the liquid alternative space, and, uh, and really just dig into what the setup is now, how our views have changed, or if they have it all. And I have here our CIO, our Resolve Asset Management Global, Adam Butler, our CEO, Michael Philbrick, and myself, President of Resolve Asset Management Global, Rodrigo Gordillo. So let's get into it, guys. Um, you know, one of the key topics that we talk about over and over again that I get a lot of flack on is the idea of inflation. Uh, more specifically, I think the way we frame it is different and people get confused but the concept of inflation volatility. You know and, what, actually, before you even go there, I think sure. that it's even worth talking about the idea of inflation. And I don't mean like what the macro definitions are and stuff. I just mean like rate of change versus a change in the price oh, level, yeah. which I think, which, which really gets people confused, right? So most people or many people anyways, sort of think that inflation means that prices have gone up. Well, and, which is fair, right? I mean, that's what you feel, it's what you feel in your pocketbook and it's what, gives you anxiety. You, you go to the, the grocery store and the prices are higher than they were a year ago. Maybe your income hasn't kept up. But for economists, they only really worry about rate of change, right? So you could have a major, you know, prices over the last year could have gone up 20%. But if they're no longer rising, then economists say there's no more inflation, right? So when we talk about inflation, we're referring to the current rate of change, not, you know, has the price level risen over the past X number of months or years or whatever, right? So, you know, at the moment, we had a major price shock 
for a bunch of reasons. We had huge supply chain shocks because we had shipping shut down and manufacturing shut down during the epidemic. And then we had a major uh, demand shock because governments around the world were handing out money as a substitute for income because so many people couldn't work, but they had all this. Now they got all this money to spend. They got all this money to spend, but there's a slowdown in manufacturing and shipping. So there's not enough goods and services to consume. So we had this, this price shock. There's a bunch of other dimensions of that. We don't need to get into all of it, but I think that's what we sort of saw in early 2022, right? So as everyone was now paying attention and there was emotional salience early in early 2022 because there had been this major price shock. And what we've seen over the ensuing sort of 18 months is that the rate of change of the price level kind of peaked in mid-2022. The rate of inflation has stayed high, but the it has come down, right? So the year-over-year price change is going up at a much more moderate rate now. And so now the markets are not so fearful about an acceleration, a continued acceleration in the rate of change of inflation. And the Fed has become more comfortable about that as well. And they're beginning to change their position on monetary policy, right? So that's kind of, that's yeah, what's good very TLDR over the, you know. But it is year. super important to talk about that because even the president of the United States, or at least his Twitter account, isn't getting it right, right? This idea that people are expecting a reduction in prices. They want prices to go back to what they were prior to 2020, but that's kind of not how inflation works. Prices just go up. The question is whether they're going up. Well, they can price. go down. I mean, I think in but, Argentina, but the price we may see prices sure. go down pretty substantially in the short term, right? But in, in developed markets, I mean, oh. I think people look at gas prices going up and down to previous levels, right? right. So they see a single line item that goes down and they're thinking, when's, when's my fruit price going to go down? What is, where is it? How, how is it that my household is spending 20% more than they did two years ago? And why isn't that going down? Well, it, it, it's never going to go down. What's happening is you're going to ask for higher, you're going to ask for a raise. You're going to ask for higher wages, wages so that your discretionary spending can remain at pace with that new price appreciation as the basket of expense. And so this, the people who, who are clamoring for lower prices just simply are having a hard time understanding what reduction in inflation. And that's partly the industry's fault in terms of language. And when they say inflation has reduced, they're not talking, they, they, the average person thinks they're saying prices are going down when what we actually mean is that the price appreciation has tam ta tapered somehow, somewhat. Right. It's the, it's the variance around that steady rate. And it's been in the narrative that the Fed has had to dance around. To me, it's been plainly obvious that you know, Adam's foresight on inflation volatility being the thing to focus on was bang on. The inflation is transitory. How transitory is it? Well, it's so transitory that we had to raise rates faster than any time in history because we kind of shit our pants a little bit because it didn't look transitory, even though we were talking it up as transitory. Right. That is the inflation volatility that Adam brought to the forefront for us to chat about a couple of years ago was the fact that the rate can be 2%. But how wide is the bell curve around the 2%? Sometimes it's zero and sometimes it's six versus just being two. And from 1982, the falling of the Berlin Wall, the opening up of China, the, the, the globalization of the world, providing so many disinflationary types of opportunities for markets to take advantage, lower, lower interest rates. 
that paper by AHL Fire and Ice just showed how little inflation volatility that we had over such a long time frame where the participants of the market didn't have any real experience with it. And now we're conversely in another environment and inflation could run at the same rate it had prior to 2022 with a much larger variance around it. And that changes everything. It changes the volatility of asset classes. It changes the correlation relationships with those asset classes. And that has occurred. I mean, that has happened. We have rates that were zero and then we're five, you know, maybe four in the U.S., but, you know, around, around jigs and rails, if you want to take a little bit of credit risk and whatnot, you could get more than four, but let, let's call it the, the tenure. You came to four or the two-year rather. That's a pretty significant increase. And we're in for more of that. We don't have deglobalization. The Berlin Wall is not falling. Your Ukraine has been invaded. Taiwan is saber rattling. We've got all the things in the Middle East that are adding to the opportunity for simply more variance That's around right. the average. And I think one of the, um, one of the analogies that we used back then that I think is important to bring back to the forefront is, you know, I was in a podcast interview yesterday and I was asked like, why are we seeing more more random events, more spikes of, of asset classes than ever. And really, I think comes down to the fact that prior to 2020, for many, many decades, we had been managing the situation, both like for, for, with the way the Fed had to manage the situation and how advisors by virtue of that had to manage the situation. It was a two-dimensional game. I think this concept of balancing on a barrel, right? You put a plank on top of the barrel, and you're either going left or right. It's a two-dimensional kind of balancing act that, you know, you practice it long enough, you kind of figure it out somewhat. It's not as a difficult a game as when you introduce a third variable. So back then, the variable was either a positive growth shock or a negative growth shock. The variable that was introduced in 2020 was inflation. And we equate that as having to ba balance yourself on the top of a ball now, right? That is a three-dimensional game. And while it is possible to do, if you have the right portfolio, the right balance, the right preparation, the right prediction, it is going to lead to a lot more jittery balancing acts. And you're going to be caught offside more often than you have in your previous investment career. And introducing this inflation variable will require allocators and investors to really throw away their intuition as to how they think the markets work based on their personal experience. And they're going to have to start digging into, wait, how does the market actually work during periods of inflation volatility, like the 70s, like the 40s, like the 1920s? And when you examine that, you realize that, hey, it's just more volatility everywhere. Asset volatility goes up, whether it's on currencies, equities, commodities, bonds. And as asset volatilities go up, there's opportunity sets, but there's also risks if you are still playing that, that balancing on a barrel. You're not going to, you're not going to find the same success. So I think the question that, that we started with is, has our thesis about inflation changed? No, the thesis was not that it was going to be an inflationary period. The thesis what was that there's going to be a lot of inflation volatility. So yeah, we're kind of seeing the guns I the current waning of the rate of inflation for the Fed or the authorities or, you know, easing of economic situations that were exerting artificial constraints all these variables are sort of conspiring to tame inflation permanently. And I think at this point, what's more likely is that we're just, you know, as we said, inflation is going to have a wider range of outcomes than we're used to over the last two or three decades in the next decade or so. 
And we're just happen to be sort of near the trough of one of those waves, right? For whatever reason that the Fed and probably a variety of other dynamics, we've had a slowing of the rate of inflation and people are becoming a little bit more sanguine right at the point when it looks like growth is beginning to reaccelerate and inflation is beginning to reaccelerate, especially on the wage front and in important service sectors of the economy. So, you know, we could easily go back to some of the dynamics that we experienced over the last few decades. I mean, look, if you wanted to buy a TV 10 years ago or 20 years ago, you can buy a TV now that is vastly superior than what you bought 10 years or 20 years ago for either the same price or a lot less, right? So manufactured goods, especially, you know, technology-driven manufactured goods have continued to go through deflation, right? In, especially when you adjust for the utility you get from them. But we don't really make a lot of new humans. And so the humans are involved in the service sector. And oftentimes you can't really scale what a human does from day to day. Um, now, new technology might be able to implement some pretty substantial changes to that over the next five or six years. We could get into what is happening in AI, but at the moment, you can't really replace humans further in terms of the service economy. That is where we continue to see a, a reacceleration of growth and a reacceleration potentially of, of some inflation dynamics. So we shouldn't get sanguine just because we've seen inflation tame over the last little while. We're probably just at the, the trough of a wave and, and about to see it reemerge. And, and I was just kind of reviewing the, some of the notes I had on that IMF paper that went back 100 years to review 100 inflationary shocks across all the major countries. And one of the things that they found is that, uh, number one, you don't, we don't nail the inflation problem on the first try. It just doesn't happen. There's both structural reasons why not, and, and there's political reasons why it's really unpalatable and difficult to do. And so it doesn't matter who you are, you're probably going to have a few tries before you put that genie back in the bottle. The other interesting thing is that those countries that actually did a good job of aggressively dealing with inflation ended up having a negative growth shock that was more pronounced initially, but a significantly higher growth rate five years, five years later versus countries that did not have that. And I don't think as you look at the landscape, especially, I think it's more pronounced in Europe where they have, their, their economies have been much weaker than the U.S., where they've actually stopped raising rates even when the inflation rate was still higher. And we're starting to see the impacts of that. And by the way, that speaks to that diversity in policy, speaks to that, what we were chatting before, how it's likely to be higher volatility across assets than we've seen it in the previous 10 years, right? It's just, it's not as uniform as it used to be. And so, yeah, I think we need to get used to the fact that right now we have strong economic growth still in the U.S. We have a low unemployment. We have continued stable wage growth. And yet we have 175 basis points, 200 basis points priced in in terms of cuts in the next 12 months, right? There's, this is the type of confusing signals that one gets. Is it, is it over? Are we... Now we hit our inflation marker. Is the Fed going to reduce rates when inflation is still going up? Are they actually going to ease? Right. So it really is structurally difficult. And then we're going to an election year where people like Yellen have actually pulled levers to stimulate the economy when Powell is actually trying to put the brakes on. So we can see how, how it's becoming more and more difficult 
on the inflation side to navigate this easily. And so it really comes down to what can, what can investors do when we don't know when the accelerator is going to be pushed and when the brakes are going to be pushed and when they're both going to happen at the same time. So any thoughts on, on that, on how, what it looks like for investors and what investors can do to deal with that environment? Well, I mean, the first and foremost is to think through diversity in the portfolio, which is always very difficult at times like this. The assets that have treated you so well for so long, and now you're going to de-emphasize them and why now potentially is the challenge. So, our, you know, return stacked and return stacking is about not having to sacrifice that. Again, when you think about the discussions lately, you've seen around valuations and valuations of what obviously is a very important consideration there. So U.S. markets, they're at high valuations. They're not the highest valuations. They're at high valuations. Well, what do high valuations mean? Well, they mean that future returns are probably lower because you pulled those future returns into the present. And that's why valuations are a concern at the moment. So if you're going to ride that momentum wave of AI, tech, U.S. equities, you should be quite diligent about managing the risk associated with those positions. Because when a strong trend upwardly with high valuations becomes a strong downward trend, that's where you get periods like 1929, 2000, Japan circa 1990. This is where you get wealth altering events that are wealth altering and not the way you like. And so if you're going to take the chance of saying, well, the trend is still so strong. Okay, that's great. Well, then you better have some other risk management techniques going into the portfolio, something that's going to counterbalance that. Now you could take the view of, well, let me look further afield. Let me look into small caps. Let me look at value. Let me look at foreign. Let me look into emerging markets. And there you see valuations that aren't stretched. Actually, you might even see downright discounts. But it's, again, we come back to the turkey story. You know, how does the turkey know when Thanksgiving's coming? The farmer treats them real well and it gets better and better until it's Thanksgiving. And so this is not an easy challenge. And it's, it's, a, it's a behavioral trap of recency bias and overconfidence. Happens every time. It, it, you know, investors today are expecting 15% return over the last five years. Why? Because they've got 15% return over the last five years. What's the long term? Long term's 10. These aren't real, obviously. These are nominal. But if you did 10, you have to do something else in order to get to the, if you've done 15 rather, to get back to 10, you've got to spend some time below the average. And that, those corrections happen one of two ten, ways. That's 10 real, right? Like <laughs> 10 real versus a, the long-term equity risk premium real is more like four. Oh, we got to go of course. Like what, And what all of that? that is valuation. That All of that excess return is increased valuation. Now, those correct through either time or price. So either you get a very long period of not very good performance while valuation catches up, or you get a significant decline in the markets. And those types of things, we saw it in 2000, we saw the equal weight or small cap stocks actually have positive performance while the S&P 500 was down 50%. It wasn't great positive performance, but it was positive simply because the valuation was way too high in those S&P 500 stocks. And it was reasonable on the rest of the marketplace which is not too far from here. So an investor has a choice. They can start to think about, you know, those quality factors, start to think about diversity in the portfolio and the stuff that their friends don't have, that they're, they don't know, that they don't love, that they don't trust. Or they can start layering on diversifying strategies like we talk about in the return stacked portfolio solutions website and suite, 
where you take those betas that you know, love, and trust and stack upon them diversifying strategies so that when there's blood in the streets, you actually have something to go buying with. Yeah. I, I, you know what's crazy is as we came into 2022 and saw the biggest rip your face off drawdown in bonds. I mean, it's, was it officially like the largest drawdown for the long, for the 30 year treasury in history? I think I heard that. I'm not sure, but it certainly was one of the most aggressive and largest drawdowns. Yeah. I think you gave back half um, of the returns. I was at that point. I'm like, that's the lesson. That's where people are like, oh, okay. Things have changed that so you got, we dropped equities and bonds. Number one correlated which wasn't supposed to happen. You know, you, we had a lot of discussions last year. People were like, when is the market going to get back to normal? And I'm like, that, that is normal. In a, in a rising rate shock environment, that is, ex that is normal. You just haven't seen it in 40 years. And I thought it was going to change. You know, you know, the chip was going to be changed. We got to figure it out in a different way. I'm scared of just going, you know, 60, 40. But what's happened is I think all of those accumulated lessons from the previous 10 years, which is, okay, be recovery from here. And they have been, uh, it, it worked out for them. They've been rewarded once again, right? They've been rewarded again. They're like, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Gordillo. Like, that was just a blip, right? That was just a blip. Don't worry about that. That's a thing of the past. And I think the, the, the problem there of trying to show things like, hey, commodities actually were the best performing asset class in the last couple of years. Um, hey, by the way, uh, managed futures is still the one of the best performing asset class over the last two years, right? It was up the index, uh, the stock and trend index and, and CTA index were up double digits in 2022 and then gave back half of that, maybe a bit more in, last year. Well, the lesson is that was momentary. I'm out. No need. You know, that's what I think we're still dealing with today. And if inflation volatility, the inflation volatility thesis plays out, that's not the only time it's going to happen, right? It is exactly within the thesis. And now how do we get people to diversify, right? To just move away from that equity bond exclusive. Well, portfolio. let's, let's maybe not, let's not let them make them, make them move away. Let's stack some things on yeah. top. And I think, that, I think that is the solution, right? It's yeah. like, you gotta, yeah. how do you, how do you get people because, to move on this? So you don't get them to move. Yeah. You, you just get well, them to put it on top. You don't get them to sell and get out. You get them to put it on top. It's, you know, I'm just still bitching because. Well, the reality is too, that things can always get more expensive. <clears throat> So if there's one thing that I think all of us have learned, like if you think the NASDAQ was expensive, go look at what Japan was. It was 60 times or 90 times, whatever the ratio you wanted to use, I think it was Cape Schiller or whatever it was, but it was, it was a full 60% higher than what happened in the NASDAQ and the S&P. And it's interesting. So when you look at, you know, sort of a statistical background and say, well, if you have high valuations, does that in fact, in the short term lead to anything? And it's like, no, it doesn't mean anything really. A lot of the times it means it's going to get more expensive in a, you know, in the one to five year time frame. in the 10 to 15 year time frame, it's kind of like gravity. Um, but there's that meaty middle. And, and if you look at a scatter graph of that, of that chart, you'll see all of these high valuation, high returns, which came in, in the late nineties where it just got more and more highly valued. So we could be in the same situation here. If we get into a world where we just start printing money as we kind of have, where things could go. At, to a place where you think people are in a in a zombie like trance now, following these uh, these AI stocks, this can we've seen it. This can get way way more cultish. What does Cliff say? It can get to 110th decile valuation, yeah, right? uh, way more than 100. Um, yeah. But you know, the value is an interesting thing in terms of sequence of return of value returns. 
I think Adam, you've done a lot of work on this, on valuation, CAPE ratio, and trying to like assess the forward returns over a five-year, 10-year, 20-year. Can you, like, I kind of feel like value is one of those things that you get all of the returns in like a few months, once every 10 years. <laughs> and you look at Warren Buffett's outperformance, it, it feels like it's not like you're going to get a little bit of that sugar every, every year. It's almost like you get it, all of it in once every 10 years, and then you can suffer again for another 10. But maybe that's this just is, my... Well, there's a couple intuition. of different things going on, right? One is sort of, I think what you're referring to is the character of the value premium. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Value is one of these things where you suffer sort of 80% of the months underperforming the market. And then you've got kind of like a six to eight month period that if you miss it, it delivered all of the excess returns that you're going to see for that decade. Right. So you really have to hold your nose and stick with it. A lot of strategies are like that. In fact, I would argue that a, a big chunk of why you might expect to receive an excess return on these strategies because they're hard to hold and most people don't want to hold them, right? So they're under-owned. And, and when something's under-owned, it means that you require a higher return in order to entice people to own it, right? And so, you know, I think that's just the nature of it. So, you know, trend following can be kind of the same. Uh, Momentum is kind of the same, right? Like people, it just hurts to be different from your peer group. And it especially hurts the longer that you are accumulating that difference, especially if that difference is negative. So, you know, I, I think that's um, a quality that you need to endure in order to be able to expect to generate higher than market returns. And then, you know, in terms of the profile of markets, when they are expensive relative to their sort of historical CAPE ratio or what have you, I think Mike nailed it, you know, for the next year or so, the likelihood is the trend's going to continue. You know, it's going to, you know, you're going to get more expensive, not less expensive. And but it's, um, oh, Buffett's mentor now that I can't remember his name of. It's like Graham? That. Charlie Munger? Bill, yeah, Graham. Oh, no. Who no. said it? Billy Graham. Term. <laughs> yeah, right. The market is a uh, weighing machine. Right. So you have to wait for it to, um, to start weighing instead of running on, on emotions. You know, what makes the current environment so especially challenging for those of us with a sense of history is just how concentrated, like it's not only just that you're the only returns are coming from U.S. cap-weighted equities, it's that it's coming from like 10 stocks, you know, those 10 stocks represent more of the index than any 10 stocks have ever represented. So, you know, they, they, they actually end up representing approximately the average amount of the index's earnings over like over the very long term, the top 10 stocks do historically generate a disproportionate percentage of all of publicly generated earnings. But the market cap of these companies is just so wildly out of whack. And it's not like you've got a diversified, you know, at least in the back when the nifty 50 was in vogue, you had conglomerates with very high valuations, but those conglomerates owned divisions across a wide variety of different segments of the economy. Whereas you, you know, you're very narrowly exposed to a group of, of tech stocks that are in turn very narrowly exposed to the future of AI. I mean, I happen to have a strong view on, on how well AI is going to play out, but whether that translates directly to the bottom line of a few tech conglomerates, I have a great deal of, of suspicion about. So, you know, it's just, it's a very concentrated bet and it's concentrated and then, and then it's concentrated and then it's more concentrated. And so, you know, I just find it particularly scary at this point. You know, I want to diversify more than ever, but it's more painful than ever to be diversified. 
Yeah. It's like it, that. It's the railroads. It's the internet. It's okay. the, it's the, you know, as I know you've pointed this out too in the past, Adam, same 500 stocks, you equal weight them over the last year, you get 6%, you market cap weight them, you get 22 and a half. It's the same five stocks. So obviously market cap is dominating. So what's that? That's, that's the valuation of those stocks increasing based on the potential for their earnings to increase down the track. Boy, oh boy, starting to sound like Cisco, Sun Micro, uh, Nortel. I mean, this dance is getting very familiar. It is. And, it, it's and a it's good, that, it's it's a that good discussion analog, of actually. like this time it's different. It's this time it's different. You, you don't, we're not valuing things oh. the same way we used to, right? We got AI now. It's different. We got Bitcoin. It's, it's like different. we had the internet, right? Exactly. The, the internet was a major thing and it ended up accruing profound value for all of humanity and generating massive productivity gains. But it just didn't accrue to nearly the extent that investors were betting to that small number of companies that were getting all of the benefit of the doubt yep. back in 1988, 89. What do you mean? Look at Netscape. Wait, wait, no, wait. But, <laughs> but this is an important discussion that kind of ties into that misunderstanding of um, how inflation works. It's, and we had this discussion with, uh, in our last podcast, you, me, and uh, were Bianco? Uh, no, yeah, Bianco, right? Which is... Look, you should be careful with investing right now, but the economy is fantastic. Mm. Like there's a big difference between an economy doing well and what your portfolio is likely to do or what level of danger is it in, right? I think, Mike, you used to use an analogy and not a, a historical analog here, which is from something like 1966 to 1997, the Dow Jones annualized at, so let me get this straight. 66 to 82, Dow Jones annualized at zero. 82 to 97, it annualized at 16. Growth rates for the first portion of that was about five. Growth rates for the second portion of that were around five. Like the economy isn't GDP necessarily growth. Tied, real, real GDP, yeah. Right? It isn't necessarily tied to what's going to happen in your portfolio. I think that it's what's priced in. And this is something that Bob Elliott keeps on harping on that I love, where he's like, well, what do you think? What's the setup? And what do you think is happening right now? It's like, what's more important is what the market is not pricing in right now, what mm -hmm. it's getting wrong. And that's how you make money in the market. And, and I think what this, you could, LLMs and, uh, and machine learning and the tech stocks could be huge for humanity and still be way overvalued and make you zero money over the next 10 years. It could happen. It's, it, and it has historically happened over and over again, but momentum is a bitch, right? So it could last a bit longer than what we think. It was argued that the part of what happened in the Great Depression was a function of the industrial revolution and a function of the fact that you did not need all that labor on the farm. The family farm became obsolete, but there was no place for those workers to go. The you had a tractor, you didn't need a horse, you didn't need a family, you had a tractor and you had the amalgamation of all of these family farms, which left quite a number of people displaced. It's not the only reason, but boy, oh boy, if you start displacing three or four or 7% of your employment force because you can make the remaining 95% more efficient through the use of AI. And then you start to interplay robotics into that. There's, there's a dislocation there that is not, this is not talked about very often. And it's not unusual. It happened with the telephone. It happened every time there has been a major leap in some sort of technology. Oftentimes it comes with a displaced workforce that needs to be retrained and how big that workforce is and what the infrastructure is within the country to retrain it or what the policies are around re-education and retraining are incredibly important 
points to mitigate those factors. And it's, it's not being talked about, but if AI is this, this boon in productivity, okay, well, does that mean we're all going to make more, produce more, and everyone's going to consume more and it takes less? Or will some, some portion of the labor force be displaced for a period of time? That's yeah, a question. Like the, the addition of all that could be la a reduction in productivity for a short period of time until we get an outstripping of productivity that'll help reduce you know, government debt and all these wonderful yeah. things that productivity tends to do. But there, this is the thing about preparation and prediction, right? And I think mm -hmm. we've been talking about all of these, these continued gaps in understanding of inflation and how valuations work and what it can... It's really tough to then know how to position your portfolio to benefit from these understandings. And, and it's really, really difficult to do. So the first thing that we always advocate for is make sure, like, I mean, if you, this is, if you guys are listening to this for the first time, the key thing to take away is you got to put most of your effort in preparing your portfolio for those shocks. And so you got to have something for bull markets, which generally tends to be, you know, equity indices, globally diversified, hopefully, right? So that's another thing. Is it going to continue to be U.S. domination? Probably not if, if history is any indication. You have to have something for bear markets. And this goes back down to not credit, but government bonds, right? When there's, when there's a non-inflationary bear market and panic ensues, people give money to the government and they start bidding up bonds government bonds across the G7 especially, right? So you have that opportunity set to protect your portfolio in bear markets. And the third one is commodities in periods of high inflation shocks. And we saw the benefit of that in the last couple of years, right? That's preparation. I think, you know, we used to talk about prediction in the context of our alpha sleeves, but I, I think we can talk a bit more about preparation with the introduction of trend replication strategies. So this, I think that's more now become a bit of an, an alternative beta that has a set of characteristics that we can count on to be there in periods, especially of pronounced trends, a prolonged and sustained trend like we saw in the first quarter of 2022. We saw in 08, you know, in periods of duress, trend following managed future strategies tend to be really, really good in bear markets, multi-month, multi-year bear markets, as well as inflationary shocks, because 50% of what they trade is in the commodity space. So I would say in terms of preparation, we have to consider as investors a solid diversified equity portfolio, a solid diversified government bond portfolio, a solid diversified inflation portfolio that should include that trend following portion. And that's a hybrid one because it also tends to help bonds, right? So it's kind of like, it straddles commodities and bonds in terms of its benefit as a, a, as a preventative measure, as a preparation portfolio. And then just make sure you're not letting the maniacs take over the asylum, as we've always talked about. Don't overweight one allocation from a risk perspective. So th those that are highly volatile should get less and those that are lowly volatile should get more, right? And that's the, the beginning. I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, that's set. If I had to like tell my wife, listen, I got one day to live. What are you going to do for the, this is what you're going to do. You're going to, you know, allocate to something like this, talk to your advisors. This is not investment advice and all that, but uh, my wife would get a very simple portfolio. And, and so I, is I, it your and, wife that has one day to live or you? I, I, okay. That's it. That's it. It depends on the day. <laughs> you see how I feel about that? <laughs> so I think yeah. the, the message here is it's going to be complicated, right? And it's, you got to start with that. I think that's how you minimize the shocks that you're going to get. And then we can, you know, try to add more innovative ways to diversify. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about the replication world that's coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, you had some thoughts there that make it even more valuable these days to, to really think about sure. that space. 
So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think that, you know, when you think about harnessing the, the trend factor via managed futures, managers, commodity trading advisors, like we are, you're thinking about harnessing both long and short exposures across bonds and stocks, currencies, and commodities, like you already mentioned. In the past, these have been harder markets to take advantage of, and they've had higher fees associated with them. So in our trend replication paper, we go through a process of thinking through how you might replicate those return streams. And there's a bottom-up method and there's a top-down method, and you get very high correlation to uh, the trend factor in the CTA space. But the nice thing is you're picking up a massive fee alpha because in the, the replication, if it were a product, would let's say the product is done at 1%. But if you're trying to replicate the BTOP50 or the Sockton Trend Index, those indexes actually include real managers, but the real manager's fee is 2 and 20. So let's say next year, this year is like 2022. We have a really difficult year for stocks and bonds and the trend factor does really great. Well, if you're in those higher priced managers, let's say the return is 20%, and I'll play a little fast and loose with the numbers. Well, you got a 20% performance fee minus a 2% management fee. You end up with 14%. That's great in a year like 2022. Boy, up 14, especially when the world you know fell apart and down 25. If you do it through a trend replication process and save the fee, let's call it 1% fee, you're now up 19% versus 14. That's 5% in fee alpha. And we have to remember that you pay the fee when you make the money. And when you make the money in these types of strategies is when the rest of the portfolio is really suffering. So where do you want that 5%? Do you want it in your portfolio, not the manager's? Because that gives you the opportunity to rebalance, it gives you that extra money to buy when there's blood in the streets. It also prevents you from making the error of buying one of the managers in the dispersion where, you know, the average is 20, one got zero, one got 40. If you have this diversifier that put up a zero in a difficult time, that is going to be a, a really challenging conversation for the asset owner if you're the advisor. Now, larger, larger asset owners can buy many of these managers and diversify across that, but RIAs, registered investment advisors, smaller D DIY investors may not have the capital to be able to allocate to these very large managers, you know, $5 million at a time. Yeah. And so the process of replication gets rid of the dispersion and it allows for a higher capture of the upside when you would pay the fees and when you want that upside in your portfolio. That's an interesting point that I hadn't actually zeroed in on until we did the analysis, right? Like, where is the the fee alpha? Obviously, I mean, you just needed to look at it, but it was like, oh, right. When the SOC gen, trend index, whatever index you're following is going sideways or down, there's not a lot of difference, right? It's already, I, thought, I thought there was some value in doing some replication. What's what's going on? So the value accrues. Most, most of the value does really accrue when it's these massive upward swings. Upside and, capture. And, and it's, you know, what Cliff's saying, it hurts when it hurts to get hurt, right? That's generally what value I think investing is. But in this case, it, it pays when it hurts to get hurt. And you want to get paid the most when it hurts to get hurt. And I think that's, that's the fee alpha there is, is a crucial thing to contemplate if you're thinking about allocating to those type of strategies. I want to move on to other things. So we talked about, I think, the basis of a do no harm portfolio, a Hippocratic oath portfolio that you can count on. There are other things that we can do that we've liked over the years that we've implemented internally and uh, 
And Adam, you did a great summary of this a couple of years ago for us, but I want you to kind of talk about it again, because if you think about diversifiers, what, what is it that you want to continue to add on once you have your prediction portfolio down? You want to add on things that have a positive expected return that have been true, tried and tested in history. You're not kind of creating it out of thin air and hope that it works. And you want something that is lowly correlated to your existing sleeves. And one of the things that keeps on coming up in our radar is that carry strategy or what was, uh, managed futures yield or alternative yield. But can, can you walk us through again, you know, what is carry, why we think it works, why we think it exists? And maybe we can talk a bit about some of the, the benefits of including it into a portfolio. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of frames to explore the concept of carry. A good, a good place to start is from the do no harm portfolio that you described earlier, where you kind of have an equal amount of your risk in assets that do well in inflation shocks, an equal amount that do well in positive growth shocks, and another that do well in negative growth shocks. So you've got the sort of equities, commodities, bonds. And the idea there is you just sort of assume that over the long term, there's a duration premium. In other words, you, you know, investors require a higher return to lock up their money for longer. So longer duration bonds on average typically have a higher return than shorter duration bonds require an even higher return to put your money in equities because you're taking on this growth risk. You know, five years could go by and the value of the portfolio is lower today than it was when you invested in it because you don't know what the trajectory of that price evolution is going to be. And that over time, because of the steady drum of inflation, commodity prices are going to rise. But there actually are a double handful of extended periods over the last hundred or so years where those basic assumptions don't actually, they're not true, right? And we just went through one in 2022. So like I said, typically longer duration bonds have a higher return or a higher yield than lower duration bonds. Well, at the moment and you know, for the last couple of years or so, that has been reversed. And so investing in longer duration bonds and locking up your money for longer has actually earned you lower returns than just keeping your money in T-bills or two-year bonds, right? So why are you taking more risk for less return? That equation is inverted. In commodities over the long term, you do end up earning a roll yield because the, the near-term commodity is at a higher price than the, the commodities, sorry, than the contracts that are further out on the curve. And that as those further out on the curve contracts roll up, they, they approach the being the most recent contract or the nearest term contract, they approach the same price as the near term contract. So they roll up in value, right? So you earn this kind of roll commodity yield. But a lot of the times commodities are, that is inverted. And so you actually, if the price of the commodity, if the spot commodity doesn't change, yes, you want to be sure the commodity because the faraway contracts are higher than the spot and they're going to roll down and you're expect you're going to expect that price to come down. So, you know, the idea of carry in this context is, well, yeah, you want to have equal allocation to equal risk allocation, to all of these different areas of the economy and different financial markets for these diverse reasons, but you don't always want to be long them. Sometimes you want to be short them, right? And so Carry is just the return that you expect to get on a market if the price doesn't change. In equities, it's the dividend yield and bonds. It's the coupon 
And in commodities, it's this rural yield that we discussed, right? Well, most of the time, this you know duration premium in bonds is positive. Most of the time, the equity risk premium is positive. Um, you know, dividends, the dividend plus shareholder yield is is higher than the risk free return, et cetera. You just want to be allocated to all these different asset classes, but in the direction of the expected premium, right? Yes, most of the time that premium is positive, but carry because it allows you to go short, gives you a chance to earn that premium when the sign flips on it, right? And I mean, there's a good question on why this premium exists, especially in commodities. And I really like the idea that carry in commodities is a win-win. It's a win for producers and it's a win for speculators. It's a win for producers because they want to sell their production forward to lock in a price and have visibility on what their earnings are going to be. And the equity and credit holders that supply those producers with the capital to run their business really like having that earnings visibility because their earnings volatility is a lot lower and they've got a a much higher probability of being able to deliver those dividends and pay those coupons to the money that loaned those firms the money to operate. And so those companies are willing to pay speculators a premium in order to take on that price risk. They lock it in, the speculators take on the price risk. And so speculators get paid basically for selling insurance on the earnings of the producers. The producers make out and the speculators make out because they're selling insurance and earning earning that premium, right? So, you know, it's great to think about carry is just a really great way to get access to a diversified basket of asset classes in the direction that they are currently paying that um, that premium, right? Rather than always assuming that that premium is positive. Oh, that's that's a great summary. It's <laughs> a great summary. And I think you know, the example for the average investor of a the, the carry of a stock being the dividend is appropriate, right? You, you look at a stock that pays a 5% dividend, you don't necessarily expect to make 5% total return on that stock, right? You could make a 5% dividend and at the end of the year, that stock have gone down 5%, you made zero, right? So it, the, the crucial point here, <laughs> the definition of carry being what you expect to make if the price doesn't change. But of course, price does change, which, ma which makes it, it's not a, a, a no-brainer, right? It is, again, you're taking risk. You could have years where that bet is not paying out, off for you. You know, in Canada, it's everybody's enamored with the big five banks and their big dividends and their consistent dividends that, you know, in 2008, you had negative 55 to negative 75% drawdowns in those banks. It is just another risk premium that you're taking. The importance here being how closely correlated is that risk that you're taking to achieve that long-term return by choosing futures contracts, whether they're in contango or backwardation, right? whether you're getting a high carry or a low carry, what is the correlation to everything else? And it turns out it's extremely low when you're, when you're using a diversified set across commodities, currencies, equities, bonds. And the decision-making is different than the decisions you're taking for everything else, right? You're getting an equity risk premium based on economic growth. You're getting a term premium based on the fact that the longer-term bond is paying more than the shorter-term bond over time, not all the time. And on trend, you're making your choices as to whether to be long or short a futures contract on anchoring and adjusting, you know, uh, hurting effects. Uh, these are cascade effects that tend to explain human nature and people wanting to pile into something for a short period of time. 
Well, it turns out that the decision to choose something to go long or short based on carry is very different than trend. And therefore, even the correlation between carry and trend is quite low. I think our internal numbers show something around 0.25%, right? So very, very creative. And, and you see that the combination of those two is, is kind of killer. It's not surprising that a lot of trend managers starting, started adding carry more and more to their trend following strategies. Not, not a lot because, you know, it does have a different character, but, uh, it is useful. So anyway, carry I just got a bad of, name too, because, you know, it was went, for, for the longest time it was associated with currency carry. So you've got managers who are effectively long, you know, developed market currencies and short emerging market currencies and the emerging market currencies pay a higher yield than the developed market currencies because they've got more currency volatility. They typically have higher inflation dynamics for a variety of reasons. And so you could, you know, you could own these emerging market currencies with high yields and borrow in, in developed market currencies and earn that spread. Right. Well, the thing is that, that the profile of that return stream to Rodrigo's point earlier is such that it hurts when it hurts to hurt. And so you want to have a more diversified basket of markets that you're using to be in the direction of this carry, right? You know, there's in a diversified carry strategy, you do have currencies. Adding emerging market currencies does change the character of a, a carry strategy. We don't actually invest in real emerging market uh, currencies in our carry strategy for that reason. But there's just so many different bets you can take around all of the different global bonds, global equity, and global commodity markets that when you're, when you have all of them in the portfolio, you don't have at all the same character yeah. you had when it was just that kind of currency carry, right? So, you know, carry gets this bad rap because it was a very different strategy than what we describe when we talk about kind of global carry, right? And I think it, it is interesting. You, people who don't know it, don't understand it, you know, you kind of explain it to them on the different side. They get it. People who have heard carry, they immediately say, oh yeah, but that'll blow up in your face. Cause it, well, actually I, I don't even think they think about it as like emerging market and, and domestic currency. I actually think about it, it's the yen U S cross, right? That is kind of steady, 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 and then you're gone. And so every time I bring up carry, they're like, oh, that's dangerous. And you know, the bring, the quote that I always use is it, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I think that carry falls into that category because there's also an, an, one other thing that adds to that story is that allocators didn't love, for example, when Winton started adding a lot of carry to the strategy because they wanted that, that crisis alpha. And so the, I think the takeaway from that, that line in the newspaper was, oh, it carry must lose all of the money that trend gives you. And I think. When, when we look at, I've just kind of gone through all of the major years of pain for equity markets. And it's just, it's not that it loses, it's that it makes less. It is, a trend tends to be more trendy. It tends to like, oh, that's exploding upward or downward. I'm going to go long and short that aggressively. Whereas carry is taking a whole different approach. It's still trying to be an absolute return type of product. And most years where we've seen bear markets in equity markets, and when we've seen negative growth shocks, carry strategy muddles along quite nicely. Not always, but most of the time, yes. So I think it just ain't so that carry always loses money when there is a negative growth shock. Oh, it's, yeah, most of the time. It Not doesn't. even close. No, it, it really is very uncorrelated with, with stocks and bonds and, and a, a very effective complement most of the time. You know, it's not, it's not the only premium, right? I mean, I love 
I love a, a variety of premiums. You know, I think eventually we'll probably add something like a merger arbitrage or a convertible arbitrage or, you know, there's the Fallen Angels premium. Like there's a number of really great risk yeah. premium out there. And, I, you know, people should be seeking all of them, right? But in that basket, I would put Trend at the top and I would put Carry right next to it. And um, so I'm excited to be on the verge of offering both of those to um, to investors to, for for stacking purposes, and I, you know, I was, as you were talking earlier about the optimal or do no harm portfolio, and I know we've been talking and harping for ten years about this Goldilocks parity portfolio, and it's you know it's what we all prefer, and I don't think any it's still in our hearts as it, it takes center stage, but I do like the fact that you know you, we've got solutions for people who just aren't ready to go to move far enough away from that sort of more traditional 60-40 orientation and that trend that the return stack concept allows them to to preserve that 60-40 that they've come to love. So, you know, they just want to hold on to it because it's been so good to them for so long, right? I get that. But you don't need to let go. You can you can put something on top. You know, you can already stack the trend on top. You can very soon you'll be able to stack carry on top and you know there's lots more coming down the pipe and i think people should really start to if you're not ready to go right to that global risk parity portfolio that we we all three know and love and you know lots of devotees among the sovereign wealth managers and largest hedge funds in the in the world but if if you can't quite get there return stacking is a really good place to start so that's actually a point i wanted to hit today uh so you nailed it right we are all terrain lovers. We want everybody to invest in this very weird high tracking era portfolio that, you know, it doesn't matter which all terrain, whether it's a permanent portfolio, adaptive asset allocation, cockroach or otherwise, in the last two years has avoided most of the pain, but it's kind of flat lined, you know, single digits, maybe flat returns in the last two years, avoided most of the pain. And people are like, well, what that, that you know, that was all terrain. That's a type of pain that you get when you invest in something that weird. But the other thing that is really interesting about this concept of stacking is for those who don't want the all-terrain, who have been, who have spent their careers or their investment careers as individual retail investors trying to beat a benchmark. Let's say you're trying to beat the S&P 500. For the longest time, forever, the way to do that is what? Stock select, right? You're trying, there's 500 stocks. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose a style, growth investing, I'm going to have a subset of those 500 or 2,500 if you're looking at the full market, 2,700, whatever it is. And you're going to choose a subset that is going, that because of whatever characteristics you like, is going to outperform that benchmark. And there's been endless research done on this. We talk about how markets are micro-efficient, but macro-inefficient. And that just means that the efficiency in, in the stock selection market, the micro-market, is such that it's really difficult to outperform, right? We've seen all those SPIVA reports that come out every year, how many active managers are able to outperform. Rodrigo, really I just pictured these value managers, you know, back in the back of the, in their office, hanging their heads and the growth managers walk by and they're hiding behind their shelves and they don't want to look at them. And all the growth managers are all huddling around the water cooler, high-fiving each five other, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, a year goes by and then, all the growth managers are hiding behind it under their desk, you know, while the value managers are walking by with, with the head held high and strutting and high-fiving each other at the water cooler. 
but it just ends up being this, you know, from growth to value to growth to value. And over time, because the stock picking orientation is so much more efficient, there's just it's not much to eke out of that, right? But the, the fact is that there are just very few players in the global investment landscape that have the mandate flexibility and the agility because they've got a swollen up portfolio to, to be agile in moving around your the capital in their portfolios to be able to take advantage of those macro anomalies, macro inefficiencies like trend following global carry, et cetera. You know, so I think it, this is just a way more inefficient area to operate with more sustainable, larger premia over time. And it's but let's nice just, to be able to can I offer just, that as an alternative. I want to yes and this, Adam. I want to say, look, if you're if you can if you have the wherewithal and if you're willing to invest in some of the more concentrated, for example, value ETFs that Alpha Architects puts in, right? 40 concentrated stocks. You, you may be able to outperform. You, you will likely, if history is any indication, and in intuition and how valuations work, you should eke out a positive rate of return that'll be painful but useful. But what does that pain do? Like You can do it, okay? Let, let's give them the benefit of that, and people who want to follow that should. And if you want to beat a benchmark, that's a, a, a way of doing it that you should pursue if, if that's your passion and you can stick to it. But let's take the value concentration, for example. When you measure the beta of a value ETF like that, you find that the, a lot of the variance is not explained by, or a portion of the variance is explained by the beta of the market, and another portion of the variance is explained by the value factor, right? What that means, in essence, is you're taking, you're not taking the 15 ball risk of the market, you're taking 20, 25% volatility in order to achieve that excess return. Are you taking more risk to get more return? And so it, for you to achieve higher returns against the benchmark, oftentimes it means that you have to take higher risks. So if you're into that, more power to you, go do that. But let's diversify. If you're into our... higher risk, yeah. go for it. <laughs> but let's, let's think about another way of trying to do that, right? And, and this is where I come in now with this concept of stacking. What if you're not about stock selection, right? You want the S&P 500 and beat it? Okay, well, what if you were to find stacks that had a positive expectancy most years, but also had the benefit of being lowly correlated to the S&P 500. Okay, well, what does that mean in actuality? If that indeed comes to fruition is that you will over time stack a return that is above the S&P 500, but because of that low correlation, you may not actually be taking higher risk to achieve that excess return. You may in fact be reducing drawdowns you may be, in fact, maintaining or even maybe you're slightly increasing your volatility because you are stacking depending on how big your stack is. But it's just if you're not into the game of all terrain and all weather, but you're into the game of outperforming the S&P or the global market, then this is just another way to try to do that. And exactly. I'm super excited by just that. And you don't have to take that. It's you're, Tracking error is low. You're just, you're just saying, hey, we're going to try to be the benchmark. And one way it's going to be value. Another portion of our portfolio is going to be growth. And the other portion is going to be return stacking, right? I, I just, feel like, I you know, that. we've been, you know, people like meat and potatoes, right? And we've been like, yeah, man, but you got to try Thai food and you got to try this Indian curry dish and you got to do this and that. And, you know, instead it's like, dude, just add a little gravy, right? Yes. Have your, have your meat and potatoes, right? But you need to try this jus with your meat, 
right? For right. this gravy. And um, man, is it spectacular. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a really good gateway to, um, to learning more about what else is out there when you sort of take the peelers off and use your peripheral vision. There's, it turns out there's a lot of different ways to earn a living off of capital markets. Um, and it's great if you can find diversification against those meat potatoes that you've grown to know and love so well. Okay. Now, guys, what do we think about the setup? Let's go back to macro for a second and leave people with, you know, I don't, I don't even know if you guys have any opinions about the current setup and what to expect in 2024. Well, I, I, I will do. say one thing we haven't touched on is the, just the, we, we've got a lot of elections this year. I think more countries are going to the polls this year than any other year in modern history. And oh, I didn't know that. There's a lot of polarity, right? There's a lot of people with very strong views on both sides of the island where we seem to be having more trouble than usual coming together and, and having a consensus. And so there could be a lot more surprises in store this year politically than we're used to. And that also could be a source of volatility in both interest rates and, and in currencies and, and potentially growth expectations. And we've also, at the same time, we've got massive fiscal stimulus. You know, you've got the U.S. Treasury running 6 to 8% annual deficits over the next, right out to 2032, according to the, um, to the budget office. And when, you know, that the deficit of the government is a surplus for the private sector. That is extra money that the, that the government puts into the private sector year in, year out for it to spend and generate wealth. And over time, inflation really is too much money chasing too few goods. And um, so if we continue to put this amount of extra spending power in people's pockets, it's not just the U.S., the Canadian government, the Australian government, Europeans, the UK, there's just a lot of fiscal largesse out there. And it's not just a supply issue. It's also a excess demand issue. And that that's going on as far as the eye can see. And some people have pointed out that maybe, you know, if, if Trump comes in, he might trim some of the spending side of the income statement, but he's also likely to preserve more tax cuts, right? And you get deficits both from direct spending and also from lower taxes, which means that there's less money coming out of people's pockets and, and flowing back to the government, right? So, you know, there's a lot of reasons and, you know, we're, we're starting to see in several off. key areas that both growth and inflation are ticking up. We haven't even seen, you know, labor is still way behind the eight ball. We've had that, we had this big price shock and labor is still catching up, you know? So there's every reason to believe based on what we're seeing that over time, we're going to see the power of labor begin to reemerge, more unionization, and um, eventually labor is going to insist on having a larger share of the pie. So wow, all reduction. of these things are, are potentially inflationary. Wage inflation. That's, well, that's yeah. a sticky. The 70s. But wage yeah. inflation, the problem is sticky. Is what you do that yeah. year, what you ask for that year, you're going to ask for the following year. Right. So it really is, as, as a Latin American, I can tell you that it's the ex inflation expectations is a tough thing to kill. That really is a behavioral thing. And, and this, this is why Powell wants to signal as much as possible that they're going after inflation aggressively. But it's the story tells it itself. This is again, back to what the belief has been for the average person is that inflation has not gone down. 
And it, the more they believe that and they don't understand that indeed we have tempered inflation, uh, the rate of a rate, the rate of change of inflation, then the more entrenched they're going to get and the more they're going to ask for that wage growth to get higher. And, and that's why the genie is going to be put back in the bottle, not today, not tomorrow, but probably in a few years. And in terms of, you know, pricing right now, it's, again, it's crazy to me to think that there's over 30% probability that there's going to be 200 points of rate, rate cuts this year. Does anybody have any thoughts on how, which is it, right? Are we, do we have continued wage growth, strong economy? We had Andy Constant down here in the summer, uh, it was early summer, I think, Mike, okay. and, um, mm, July, I think. And he had, you know, we were talking about soft landings, no landings, higher for longer. And I think we ran around the table and eight out of 10 people thought we were going to be in recession by now yeah. as of last summer. And I remember saying, not with the amount of fiscal largesse that we've got coming down the pipe. There's just way too much money flowing into public purses for us to have a recession. We are at continue to be sub 4% unemployment rate. The employment rate, number of people out in the economy working is, is higher than it's been in 15 years. And we've got the government, at, even while the economy is running this hot, the government is continuing to put 6 to 8% of GDP back into the economy for extra spending. So, you know, I just don't see a recession on the horizon. And as long as equity prices keep going up, then companies have no reason, even if their productivity growth is above expectations and they have excess staff, there's got no reason to cut because, you know, they would just went through this period where it was hard to get workers. It was like a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's hard to get the workers you need. So they're likely to hold on to them unless the market forces them to cut to preserve earnings. So all of the things seem to be conspiring for a hotter than expected economy over the next year. Not a, not a loose. Uh, and it's Andy, Andy's roadmap is bang on. I mean, the way it has to go, right? The timing of it is always what makes it difficult to invest, but the way things have to go in order to have sustainable low inflation is first you have to have, I mean, from here, rates need to go up on the long end, right? That's either, it's unlikely given the growth that we have that the Fed's going to be cutting 200 basis points. So I think that's the mispricing that, that he's talking about consistently. So rates go up, that puts pressure on assets, right? Bonds are going to go down obviously at the same time, but then that's going to put pressure on equities. Equities should get hurt. From there, you have a lower demand from consumers. That's going to hurt earnings, right? That's going to allow for the wage, the employment market to soften, which is going to allow for reduction of wage growth, which is then going to lead to a permanent or more consistent, hopefully, reduction of inflation. But that's the order of operations that we need to see historically in terms of a macro cycle for us to finally say, okay, listen, soft landing, we, we killed it. But those things need to happen. There's not, we're not going to get from here to there in, in 12 months, right? It's going to be- Especially not in, with, with the current structure we have. No. On the, and on and the macro cycles, and... macro cycles aren't months, they're years, right? Yeah. I think Bob Elliott talked about the fact that 2008 was not a macro cycle. It was a credit crunch. 2020 was not a macro cycle. It was a negative growth shock. Macro cycles move insanely slowly and take a long time to move. If we look at what, how people have perceived the outcome of the economy over the last 18 months, like you said, Adam, 
you know, was it a soft landing? Was it going to be a recession? Now we're talking about soft landing again, like the variation around the actual macro numbers. The macro numbers have been fairly consistent. They have not changed, with the exception of inflation changes, you know, the employment, the, the wage growth, the, the, the amount of fiscal spending, and it's all maintained relatively the same rate. And the only thing that's changed wildly is the narrative around that, right? So I think we're, people need to get prepared for the long haul here. And again, you know, the reason you want to be prepared is because while Andy was right about the order of operations, you know, one felt when you spoke with them that, oh, this is eminent, like this rates up, assets down, that's it. And it happens for two months and then we recovered very quickly, right? So it's not, it's one thing to know what the order of operations is and it's another thing to be able to get it right in time and win. Again, more emphasis on why you need to prepare first and foremost. All right. Any other yeah. thoughts, gentlemen? Yeah, the NASDAQ went from like 2,500 to 5,000 in the last six months of its run. That's a bubble. And uh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. It's, well, it was crazy. Remember, remember the one we did, the pandemic, the pandemic portfolio that we, that we had in March of 2020, where we kind of like, okay, what's going to happen here? And it's, uh, we said, everything can happen. Again, it's just a, a testament. Like, we don't know. It could be this. It could be that. What happened was not, I think, high in our guesstimations, right? We knew that. We didn't know. But if you were to pull us really at that point, we're like, oh, it's probably going to get worse from here. And it got so good. Um, we're still falling really short, you know, the, the, the Russian debacle, the Thai bot. I mean, the, the, the NASDAQ went from 1400 to five grand. We got another hundred percent to go. August, 1994, the U S equity market hit the most expensive it had ever been on a PE basis, August of 1994, and yeah. then went on to double again by 1999. Right. So. Absolutely. Anything can happen. We're not, this is not a prescriptive exercise, but it, it is helpful, I think, to explore all of the other things that might happen that may not be quite as favorable to everybody's favorite portfolio right oh, now. I don't think that I would think be a favorable outcome. Markets yeah. going up with that kind of intensity. I'm not sure we have a lot of people who are like, Ooh, did I ever do good? And, 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 and then Investing from 2000 to 2014 was like two fifty percent drawdowns with a return of zero. Mm -hmm. Well, look, right? again, how many people in the U.S. equities? That's today. exactly the S&P 500. You know, right there. 2023 that actually participated in this run-up. It happened in the last quarter, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the favorite portfolio was cash. Cash was king, five percent. Why would I do mm -hmm. anything else? Why would I take the risk? Boom, two months, twenty percent return. I mean, I don't know anybody that was fully invested for their clients. Well, this is the other thing that we need right to reemphasize. I know you mentioned this earlier, Rodrigo, but the, you know, we could easily see a situation where the Fed holds or even raises in six or nine months because inflation's reaccelerated. And, but we're coming into an election. And in all likelihood, Janet is going to allow the amount of bills issued to get way outside any historical precedent in an effort to avoid having to issue long duration coupons to fund the deficits. And therefore equity markets could continue to do well, you know? So, you know, it, it, it takes both the treasury deciding that they're going to allow equities to, to drain out and the fed saying that we need the economy to run a little less hot in order for 
the market to capitulate here and coming into an election cycle with what a lot of people feel to be existential things at stake. It'll, you know, I think we need to acknowledge the, the potential for very extreme things to happen. Amen. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for the 2023 recap. Uh, we, I think we got to do this more often. I really enjoyed yeah. this one. Maybe once a quarter, get back in there, bring a special guest in. All right. All right. You guys are special enough. I guess. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for uh, doing this with me today. I know that I pushed for this last minute, but uh, I think it worked out. That's great. Any other, any final Always thoughts? Pleasure. Where can everybody find you guys? Everybody knows where you are. You know, everybody you knows where you are. You, at Gestalt U for Adam Butler and Twitter. I got uh, Rod Gordillo P, the worst Twitter handle on the planet. P being my second last name. Rumor has that your LinkedIn profile is on fire lately, though. You got to find Rodrigo on LinkedIn. Rodrigo. Rodrigo Gordillo. Forward slash Rodrigo Gordillo. And then Mike, you're Mike99? At Mike Philbrick99. At Mike Philbrick99. All right. On Beautiful. Twitter, that is. But anyway, and for our content, you can always find us on investorsl.com, on returnstacked.com, where we have a ton of research videos, podcasts that uh, will continue to help you out in your journey. Okay. Thanks, everyone. And we'll see you next week. Rock on. Thank you for listening. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at Investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.